Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. This is Troy Hollings with a Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode two of The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Go listen to episode one. You won't know what's going on. And it continues. We got a bit more of him laying out his story because he's not done. You know, you thought that was hard. You thought all that shit was crazy. He's not even not even close to, to done experiencing the horrible torture of being a CEO. Their share price fell to 35 cents. So on the last episode, what, what just happened was uh, they, they sold their most popular 100% of their revenue came from the cloud business. They sold it to, uh, to some people and it's like, ha, 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 it's yours now, no take backs. And they took all the money and then they went and they invested it all in, the, in their soft, internal software program that they, were, they knew worked. They knew it was good. We're going to go sell this. But the whole market was like, bitch, I didn't buy your fucking dream idea. I bought, I don't know, the cloud business. And so everybody left. So their stock price went to 35 cents. I realized that nobody besides me knew how bad things had become and nobody besides me believed in the future. So he took all his employees, uh, took so, so that some of them had to just go. Like with the cloud business that he sold off, like I'm sure there's assets, I'm sure whatever. So like a fair amount of them just did leave with the, the acquisition. But there were 80 left. Which is, you know, that's a pretty good army to start a start a new company. Um, I took our remaining 80 employees there for one night of drinking and one day of explain of me explaining the opsware opportunity. And so uh, they're offsite at a motel, a motel. That's your company offsite, not a hotel, a motel. Yeah. And uh, so they drink one day, and then the next day he tells the whole story, just like we went through. He explains it all, and at the end he says. You now have heard everything that I know and think about the opportunity in front of us. No one believes, but I do. All I ask is if you decide to quit, you quit today. That day, two employees quit. Of the other 78, all but two stayed through the sale to HP five years later. So he five within five years, he sold it off again and got a bunch of money. But think about think about what how good of a leader that guy must be. <laughs> like, hey, I know this seems like a bait and switch. It's not. It's a it's a great opportunity. And then 78 of them stay. So they started rebuilding. Uh, they began signing customers at a consistent pace. And our stock price rose from its 35 cents to more than $7 per share. And it felt like we were finally out of the woods. Naturally, I was wrong. 60 days to live. Their largest customer... Uh, actually 90% of their total revenue wanted to cancel their deployment and end the contract and get their money back. Giving them their money back would be an end to Opsware. That was their, you know, spin-off company. But getting into a big dispute with a customer that accounted for all but 10% of our revenue would also mean an end to Opsware. So like what he's saying is big dispute. Like technically it is unclear legally if that big fucking customer can just back out of their contract or not. And so big fucking customers like, we, we want a refund. We're like, bitch, there's no refunds here. They're like, we want a refund. We 
we are done. We want a refund. You have cheated us. We'll take you to court. And you're like, fuck, because you can take them to court. Maybe you'll even win by the letter of the law of your, uh, you know, on your side, but you'll win in a year and a half. And by win, it mean like you get a paper stamp, but your company's out of business. So he called up two of his top lieutenants and, and he, and basically says, what's going on? I need the full fucking debrief of this account. So he gets the full debrief by both of his lieutenants. After a long pause, I rub my head and I began to give instructions carefully. I appreciate the difficulties and thank you deeply for the effort. However, I do not think I've made myself clear on the situation we are in. This is not a scenario where an excuse will do. This is a must win. If EDS drops us, we're fucked and it's over. Jason, the whole company is at your command. Whatever you need, I'll make sure you get it. <laughs> Imagine being in that pressure situation. You're like, well, I thought I worked at a good fucking, I thought I was at Google. You're like, you're telling me I'm, you're telling me if my account that is a dick, if he, uh, if he doesn't, if we don't get him back, then uh, we're, the whole company's fucked. So they fly to the client. They grovel with the desperation of a nighttime street walker looking for just one more dick to feed her baby. And they finally find Frank Johnson. Now this guy's the blocker, a big guy, West Point grad. But after listening a bit, and this is their listening to their, their just pleas of, come on, man, please, pretty, pretty, please. Frank stands up and he shouts, you fucking want to know what I think about Opsware? I think it's the biggest goddamn piece of shit. All I hear all day is how much this product fucking sucks. I'm going to do everything I can to get you guys thrown out of here. Damn. <laughs> Seems like we got a big shot on turning this account. Uh, Anthony remained calm. He looked him in the eye and he said, Frank, I will do exactly as you say. I've heard you loud and clear. This is a terrible moment for you and us. Allow me to use your phone and I will call Ben Horowitz and give him your instructions. Before I do, can I ask you one thing? So he's basically saying like, I will call Ben and Ben will respect what you're saying. But before that, before I burn my fucking friends alive, which I will do because of you, can I ask you one thing? If my company made the commitment to fix these issues, how much time would you give us to do that? 60 days. And then this, this West Point dick says, uh, clock has just started ticking. And then he kicked him out of their fucking office. Ben says, I had 60 days to live. It was a full court press. Um, you know, they like started catering to this dick from West Point. And, and like West Point's fine. I, I just don't remember his name. Um, they flew him out to the headquarters. Like, hey, dude, it is so critical. You are so important. It is so critical to our company that, that you guys are happy. I will fly you out and we will listen to your advice. And he, uh, this dude, West Point guy asked for the longest layover and the account manager dude, dude was like, why? And he's like, because I hate my job and my family. Ben says, wow, I had no idea who I was dealing with up until that point. We needed something dramatic to break his psychology. We needed to be associated with the airport bar, not his job or family because he'd get the long layover and then he would just get shammered at the airport bar and then he would get like taxi to whatever place he's going like so that's how this dude's dealing with his life um but 
they figured out that this dude had a, a little program that he loved. So it's like, you know, sometimes people fall in love with their ideas at work and it's really annoying. And uh, so this dude, like, there's just one program. Like for me, I love Microsoft To Do. It's just so easy and to-do lists and it's like the best. And like, I guarantee I can teach anybody my Microsoft To-Do system to like, cause I'm, I'm kind of stupid and disorganized to basically handle any amount of inputs that come your way forever, anytime. I can do it. But I don't like force people to talk about it. Like I've helped a couple people with Microsoft To Do, but um, you know, I'm not like any fucking chance I get. I'm not like you know Microsoft To Do would have solved this. There's some people who who are who are like that, and this dude was like that about one little piece of software called Tangram, and and oh, and then and this dude, he's being forced to migrate away from the software in the Switch. So it'd be like. Our company switches ERPs, and I'm now not allowed to use Microsoft To Do. I'm not allowed to use it. Oh, I'm going to be hateful, son. And uh, so the account manager was like, "Hey, if if Tangran, if Microsoft To Do can come with this fucking op with this ERP system, then Troy will like us again." And so Ben looked looked the company up. It was six million dollars is publicly traded, and um, he's like six million. Shit, man, that's interesting. Um, I had never heard of a public company being that cheap. I immediately called my head of BD and told him I wanted to buy Tangram, and I needed it done before our 60-day window with EDS closed. So, <laughs> think about that. He's like, "Fuck, okay, this this will seal the deal. You're confident it'll seal the deal. I am. Okay, let's buy it." And so they bought the metaphorical Microsoft to do. They bought the company. And they rolled it in and said, it comes. Look, look, your program, we're sorry. Your program, it comes. We bought the company, please. And so this dude ends up turning. He likes him now. He calls him in. He was ecstatic. At the end of the 60 days, Frank gathered the team and made the following speech. I gave the speech I gave you guys at the beginning of this process to at least a dozen other vendors. They all promised things, but none ever delivered. You guys really delivered and I am shocked. You are the best vendor that I have and I'm happy to be working with you. Fuck, that's insane. <laughs> Save the company that time. Shit. Uh, a few months later, it, it didn't let up. Um, another com competitor just started crushing them. And um, he just, he said, he called all his employees and he said, hey, I guys, guys, I have some bad news. We are getting our asses kicked by Blade Logic, and it's a product problem. So what that means, think about what that means. That doesn't mean that your sales reps suck. It doesn't mean that you know they're not trying hard enough. It means that the product that you have is shittier than the other product. If this continues, we're going to have to sell the company for cheap and there's no way to survive if we don't have the winning product. I'm going to need every one of you to do something. I need you to go home tonight and have a serious conversation with your husband and wife and tell them, Ben needs me for the next six months. I need you to come in early and stay late. I will buy you dinner and I will stay here with you. Make no mistake, we have one bullet left in the gun and we must hit the target. Nine months later, armed with a new product, Mark Cranny, our head of sales, went to war. He demanded mastery. Any slip up in technique or skill or knowledge would be met with total intolerance from Mark. On a call, so these are like the pipeline review calls. On a call, um, a sales rep 
says, my champion assures me that they'll be able to complete the deal by the end of the quarter. And that's a fucking, that's a pretty iron type. Like if I told my boss, my champion assures me that this company will sign with us within the, by the end of the quarter, my boss would be like, sweet, awesome dude, thanks man. And, but Mark Cranny says, have you spoken with the VP? No. Have you spoken with the president? No. Okay, listen carefully. Here's what I'd like you to do. First, reach up to your face and take off your rose-colored glasses. Then, get a Q-tip and clean the wax out of your ears. Finally, take off your pink panties and call the fucking vice president right now because you do not have a deal. <laughs> Imagine I tell my boss, like, oh, you know, pretty much guaranteed it's going to happen. And they say, we do not have a deal. They fucking gutted through it from the ashes. We built a software business that approached $150 million revenue run rate. Every quarter was tough, but we, we, we made it. So they pulled off one of like the craziest transitions. And then he ends up like doing some s serious hardball negotiation because there were some rumors that big companies now like change your mind. They're like, holy shit, you're a baller. We want to buy your company. They're like, we don't exactly understand everything about it, but like the fact that you clearly actually built another company, you must have known this all along. You're a genius. Let's buy your company and you with it. And so uh, he just played hardball and was like, all I'm going to accept is $14 a share. And they're like, but your company's valued at $12.25. Like, well, bitch, did I, did I approach you or did you approach me? Because I don't want to fucking sell it at $12.25. I like working at this company. I don't want to have to go public again. But if you pay me $14.25 per share, bitch, okay, I'll listen. Finally, HP offered them $14.25 per share. We had a deal. When it finally ended, the long road from LoudCloud to Opsware, I couldn't believe that I'd sold what took eight years and all my life force to build. I was shocked. And just when we thought all little happy bunnies would come to Ben, when things come apart. When I was attempting to sell the cloud business, I met with Bill Campbell to update him on where I was with the deal. The deal was critical because without it, the company would almost certainly go bankrupt. He looked at me and said, Ben, you need to do something in addition to working on this deal. You need to do it alone with your general counsel. You need to prepare this company for bankruptcy. <sighs> Fuck. I felt that Bill was telling me, although I was walking around and trying to get the deal done, that I was already dead. He told me that I could emotionally prepare myself and financially prepare the company for the inevitable funeral. The odds of landing a company-saving deal during the technology industry's nuclear winter were close to nil. Chances were, I was dead. I never built that contingency plan. Through the seemingly impossible loud cloud Series C and IPO process, I learned an important lesson. Startup CEOs should not play the odds. When you're building a company, you must believe there's an answer and you cannot pay attention to your odds of finding it. You just have to find it. It matters not whether your chances are 9 in 10 or 1 in 1,000. Your task is the same. And so what he's basically saying is like, you know, when shit was really, really tough, that, that really respected Bill guy told him, hey, buddy, you got to get ready. You got to get ready to go down. You got you to gotta prepare with the, with the lawyer. And he's like, oh, fucking, you don't believe in me, bitch. And so he never did the plan because he's saying a truly successful uh, entrepreneur needs to be just always believing that there is a way. Even when it's one in a thousand, 
you know, it doesn't matter one in a thousand. Yeah, maybe it's one in a thousand for fucking other people, but but I'm going to find it. And so I think that's very interesting. And I think it's wrong, but I think it's useful. So in an, an analogy for me, um, I believe almost to the point of blind faith in the growth mindset and that the end that I can learn anything. And I've proved it over and over to myself. You know, I'm slow. I'm stupid many times. But guess what, bitch? After like two weeks, I'm like as fucking as good as anybody else. And after like three months, I'm like great at stuff. Um, and so now, is that technically true, though? That I truly, truly can learn anything? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, maybe a variation of it is true. And, you know, there are certain things that I just legit, like, could I really become a, a shape-spinning genius? <laughs> I don't know, dude. I'm kind of fucking stupid at spinning shapes. But um, in my mind, the optimal attitude and the only thing I fucking allow myself to think is the pure, unadulterated truth, which is the growth mindset, that anything can be learned through practice. So I think it's the same here. You know, statistics are true, dude. Like, Rat Taleb has blasted that into our fucking brain. But the optimal attitude is like Leonidas in 300. I will fucking get this figured out. Take your goddamn averages and odds and throw them out the window because you don't know me. Maybe it's one out of 1,000 for other people, but for me, it's 100%. 100% that I either fucking die or I figure it out. And pretty sure I'm not going to die, so it's just a matter of time until I figure it out. So that's I think that's what he's saying. That's like the attitude that he's suggesting you have. And uh, I'd say he's wrong. But his attitude is an optimal operating system. Like, you should think like that. Uh, because, hey, if you die, well, you're going to die anyways. And if not, you can pull crazy shit out of your ass. And you never give up. So he sold the two companies. He got super fucking rich. And then he's just like, oh, God damn. And then he started a venture capital firm, which basically just like, I think he just goes around and drinks coffee a lot. And then he occasionally just like has so much money. He's like, it, you just let me just use basic critical thinking and I'll, I'll find successful companies. And then he does. And then we, and then he's at even richer now. But um, that is his story. And that's a crazy story. And he says, I put these previous sections first, AKA his story, even though it deals with some serious end game issues, such as how to fire an executive and how to lay people off. In doing so, I follow the first principle of Bushido. Keep death in mind at all times. If a warrior keeps death in mind at all times and lives as though each day might be his last, he will conduct himself properly in all actions. Similarly, if a CEO keeps the following lessons in mind, which are the lessons he's about to share with us, he will maintain the proper focus when hiring, training, and building his or her culture. I swear, I didn't make that up. The, my worlds have collided. He did just quote the fucking Hagakure. That's fucking right. Story time is done. So he moves into these lessons and it's kind of confusing. And I just ended up like ignoring all chapter structure and just like making, pulling out the best lessons and then here are the lessons he's got. So uh, the rest of the episodes, if this goes to another one, it's going to be less of, Hey, I have to track the specific fucking structure. It's more like, here's the tip. Here's the tip. Here's the tip. They're all good. Here's the tip. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, back in the day when it was legal, you know, how, how you taught kids was you just let them live their life. And anytime they even slightly fucked up, you just slapped them and you taught them a lesson. That's what, that's what he's doing right now. So get prepared for like 15 lessons in wild story form 
uh, told from the, the drunk guy at the bar who might or might not slap you, but also happens to be an emperor. That's what we're doing. First lesson, the struggle. Everyone starts their company with grand visions. Then, after working night and day to make your vision a reality, you wake up to find things that did not go as planned. Your product has issues that will be very hard to fix. The market isn't quite where it's supposed to be. Some employees quit. Some of the good ones. You're running low on cash. You lose a big customer. The walls start closing in. Where did you go wrong? Are you good enough to do this? Are you gonna die? Now you find yourself in the struggle. This is trademarked. The struggle is when you wonder why you started the company in the first place. When people ask why you don't quit and you don't have an answer. So think about that. People are asking why you don't quit because they, they can see the struggle and you don't have an answer. That was like when I was training for that ultra marathon and my wife's so unhelpful. She was like, just, just skip today. Skip it. What's the worst that happens? And I'm like, I don't have any answers. I should skip it. I think I should skip it, but I wouldn't. But like, ugh, I want to skip it when you don't have an answer. When your employees think you might be lying and you think they might be right. You're like, am I, am I delusional or am I just lying to them? And you know when food loses its taste, when you know that you're in over your head and you know that you cannot be replaced, when everybody thinks you're an idiot but no one can fire you, when self-doubt turns to self-hatred, Jesus Christ, Ben, you doing okay, little buddy? Most people are not strong enough. Every great entrepreneur from Steve Jobs to Mark Zuckerberg went through the struggle. So you are not alone. But that does not mean that you're going to make it. You may, you may not make it. That is why it's the struggle. So he's not giving you like some pansy ass like, if you believe hard enough, you can achieve hard enough. He's saying, hey, bitch, you might actually not fucking make it. Okay? That's why it's the struggle. The struggle is where greatness comes from. Some stuff, he says, that may or may not help with the struggle. There's no answer to the struggle, but here are some things that helped me. Don't put it all on your shoulders. Get the maximum number of brains on the problem, even if the problems represent existential threats. So think about the time at Opsware when he called that all-hands meeting, and he said, if we don't stop getting our asses kicked, we're going to die. Nobody blinked. The teams rallied, they built a winning product, and they saved his sorry ass, he says. The next thing to help with the struggle, it's not checkers, it's motherfucking chess. That's, that's a quote. There's always a move. The next is, play long enough and you might get lucky. Like, I can't remember what this exact parable was, but there's some parable of like, there's a Chinese emperor guy who's going to execute someone, and the guy's like, oh, if you keep me alive in a year, I'll, I'll teach you how to be immortal. And the king's like, done and so you know okay cool you bought yourself a year but that's crazy but hey it's better than dying right now and a lot can happen dude if you play long enough you might just get lucky you know if you survive long enough to see tomorrow it may bring you the answer that seems impossible today just buying more days brings you more optionality so you know that hey oh i'll, I'll become I'll, I'll i'll turn you immortal if you, if you let me live in a year i'll turn you immortal well maybe that king dies maybe you poison him. i don't know don't take it personally. Next tip. Remember, this is what separates the women from the girls. If you want to be great, this is the challenge. If you don't want to be great, then you never should have started the company. So so first, first lesson is be prepared for the struggle. One of the most important management lessons for a founder CEO 
is totally unintuitive. It's that CEOs should tell it like it is. My single biggest personal improvement as CEO occurred on the day when I stopped being too positive. He learned this when he was talking to his AT&T lineman brother. Uh, ben said, hey, how do you know this guy? I just, I just met Carl Johnson from, from AT&T. And uh, you know him? And uh, his brother-in-law said, yeah, I know, I know Carl. Uh, he comes by about once a quarter to blow some sunshine up my ass. At that moment, I knew that I'd been screwing up my company by being too positive. My team knew that reality was more nuanced than I was describing it, and they still had to listen to me blowing sunshine up their asses at every company meeting. So think about that. You know, you're, you know, everybody knows that shit's fucked up. But then you hear the CEO like, man, this is the best place to work ever. Everything's great. We're all going to buy jets. And you're like, bro, uh, are you an idiot? We're not going to buy jets, okay? I'm, I'm about to afford a box maybe, like a, like a cardboard box to live on the fucking streets. He says, I thought I was best able to handle bad news. Turns out the opposite was true. Nobody took bad news harder than I did. Engineers easily brushed off things that kept me awake at night. But then he remembered he was the only one married to the company. If things went horribly wrong, they could just go get new jobs. So, so that's an interesting concept. You know, he feels like he needs to fucking lift the world up and and not let a single bit of negativity uh, fucking come in into the the, co- the the collective psyche of the company. But he's married to the company. He's like, it's like if if you find a mole on your wife, like oh my god, I can't. I can't even look at her anymore. But if you just like see a random girl and uh, she's got a mole, he's like, oh, cool. Well, I'll just pay for you to get surgery and then we'll take it right off. That's what he's saying. It's important to tell it like it is because you're the one who really is invested. The other the other people are like, oh, whatever. You jack my mole off? Cool. You want to go on a date? And he also says, you know, you need to tell it like it is because the more brains working on a hard problem, the better. You know, bad news travels fast and good news travels slow. If you investigate companies that failed, you will find that many employees knew about the fatal issues long before those issues killed the company. This is exactly right. When I was at Angie's List, it was still back in the day where they Angie's List charged for memberships. So they'd built this kind of like mail order subscription business that 80% copy and pasted it online. Um, but Part of the, the reason initially that Angie's List happened was it was almost like a coupon book. So, you know, it'd be a coupon book, there'd be some ratings, whatever, but like it was mostly a book. So, you know, in 2004, that was a viable business model. You know, it was like, oh, okay, well, this doesn't appear to be operating by the same rules as magazines. Like, this seems like a good business. And so, you know, they charged 60 bucks for a membership. 60 bucks, you know, it was, it was an expensive thing, but you know, my mom had her Angie's List membership and people have their fucking Angie's List memberships. Well, then some, some company called Yelp came along and you know what Yelp's model was? Zero dollar membership, sell ads. And so what Yelp had was just network effects. They had, I don't know, 40 times the members of Angie's List. And yeah, okay. You know, like what Angie's List used to say was like, well, is there, is a review written by a uh, paying member? You know, that, that's that's going to be a much better review than someone free. And so they had all these fucking talking points. Like it was, there was company opinion of, 
of how uh, to answer certain questions from the highest levels. And one of those questions was, why do we have a membership anymore? Because when the internet came along and everybody moved online, you know who, 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 had, uh, who had magazines? Nobody. And so now you moved, instead of competing with you know, a, a magazine company, you're competing with Yelp. And so I, every time we'd have these all-hand company meetings, I'd raise my hand like, has Angie's ever considered having their memberships be free? And I was like 22, and so I didn't realize that like, there was a pecking order to things. But who fucking cares? It was a good question because uh, the answer was no, they never did realize. And then eventually, like five years later after that, no joke, five years, they got acquired and uh, and they brought in a new CEO or what the fucking, I don't remember. But um, hey, surprise, surprise, they eventually made it free and are now competing against um, Yelp much more effectively. But that's what he's saying. You know, if you just, if you're just transparent, that transparency spreads. You know, it allows people to truly question things, to truly have real opinions. Because if you surveyed 200 frontline Angie's people, 180 of them would have been like, yeah, the membership should be free. Okay. So how did they not dig down and grab that correct opinion out of our brains? I don't know. We're saying avoid that. A company culture that's healthy encourages people to share bad news. If you run a company, you'll experience overwhelming psychological pressure to be overly positive. Stand up to the pressure, face your fear, and tell it like it is. Lead bullets. Next lesson. Early in my tenure at Netscape, when we realized that Microsoft's new web service had every feature that ours had, but was also five times faster and going to be given away for free. Um, oh yeah, so that's like Mosaic, whatever that is. It's going to be given away for free. Um, you know, Everybody, like Ben had all these grand ideas and was basically like, we should do this. We should do that. And uh, he went to his head of technology. And like I said, Ben, those silver bullets that you are looking for are fine and good. But our web server is five times slower. There's no silver bullet that's going to fix that. No, we're going to have to use a lot of lead bullets. Oh, snap. What a good metaphor to, to convey that point. I carried that lesson with me for many years. Six years later at Opsware, um, all of his people like started approaching him with all these cool, trendy ideas. And uh, he, he says, all these approaches reinforced to me that we weren't facing a market problem. The customers were buying, they just weren't buying our product. So I said the same thing to every one of them. There are no silver bullets for this, only a lot of lead bullets. And what this means to me is it's just like, you know, they just had to build a better product. They just had to cut out waste. They just had to go back to the basics. You know, they just had to fucking remember to keep their hands up and to box better rather than go train with Shaolin monks and try to learn some goddamn rooster paw technique. You know, no, it's just, hey, dude, yeah, you know why you get hit in the face? Because you're dropping your hands and you're windmilling. Okay, you keep your fucking hands up, your chin down, do some tight boxing, you're better than him. That's what they're saying. And he, and he still uses this advice to this day. The next lesson, which I believe is a happy lesson. I, I take it as very inspirational. Nobody cares. One day I was feeling sorry for myself and I randomly watched an interview with famous football coach, Bill Parcells. I know zero facts about Bill Parcells. Uh, his team had a bunch of injuries. It was difficult enough to win with your best players, let alone a bunch of substitutes. When his friend and mentor Raiders owner, Al Davis came, Parcell relayed his injury woes to him. 
Davis said, Bill, nobody cares. Just coach your team. <laughs> so imagine, you're like, all oh, my players are injured, damn it. And uh, the big boss comes like, dude, nobody cares. Just do a better job. Just, just be better, okay? That might be the best CEO advice ever, Ben says. Because you see, nobody cares. When things go wrong in your company, nobody cares. Even your mama doesn't care. Nobody cares. All the mental energy you use to, to elaborate your misery would be far better used trying to find the one seemingly impossible way out of your current mess. Spend zero time on what you could have done and devote all your time to what you might do. Because in the end, nobody cares. Just run your company. So he's saying, you know, fucking any time that you'd be like, what what am I going to, if this company goes bankrupt, how am I going to tell everybody at Thanksgiving? If this company goes bankrupt, what am I going to put on my Tinder profile when I get a divorce? If this company goes bankrupt, what the fuck am I going to do? He's saying, don't think about any of that. All that fucking mental energy. If you're going to fixate, fixate on fixing it. Next lesson. Take care of the people, the product, and the profits in that order. Once we pushed Opsware stock back above $1, the next problem was to rebuild the executive team. More importantly, the next mistake I made on a sales leader would be my last. To better prepare myself, I decided in the interim to run sales myself. I managed the team, the forecast calls, and was the one person responsible for the revenue number. I'd learned the hard way. When hiring executives, one should follow Colin Powell's instructions and hire for strength rather than lack of weakness. And so he's saying the highest level thing to remember here is when you're when you're thinking about, oh, fuck, it's a struggle. It's crazy. It's craziness. The first step is you got to find the right people. You have to have the right people. You can't if you don't have the right people, you fucking can't do it. That's the first thing. Then he's saying once you have the right people, OK, like you really need a good fucking product. And then last but not least is the profits. Okay, now you got good people, a good good product. Like the profits will come. But you don't you don't have a you don't just try to like do backrooms deals to keep the profits up if you don't have the people in the product. That's what he's saying. And so in part of doing that, you need to hire good people. And so his theory on hiring is hire for strengths, not lack of weakness. And so he was trying to find the sales leader. And after interviewing a dozen candidates, none who had the strengths I sought, I interviewed Mark Cranny. He wasn't what I expected. He didn't fit the type of hard-charging sales executive. This guy was average height, blocky, the type of face you just want to punch at a bar. (laughs) I don't think he said that, but maybe. Mark's seriousness was so intense that it seemed to make him uncomfortable in his own skin. He made me uncomfortable too. And so Ben's interviewing this guy, and um, one technique he'd do is he'd be like, tell me about what you think about hiring. What do you look for in a good sales rep? You know, how do you think about training? And everybody would just give some fucking platitudes of like, they need to be smart, aggressive. How do you, you know, how, how do you find them? Well, I hire everybody out of my network. And, you know, that's uh, not good, good questions. Um, and so he says, tell me about the training program you designed. And so this is when, all the other sales leaders would just start making shit up. Like they just didn't have a training program. So Mark was crushing it through this whole interview. Then he asked the training question. So tell me, tell me about the training program you designed. 
and uh, I'll never forget the pained look that came across his face. He looked like he wanted to get up and leave. And I later realized that to ask Mark Cranny to describe the proper way to train sales reps was like a layman asking Isaac Newton to explain the laws of thermodynamics. So Mark reached into his bag and pulled out a giant training manual he had designed. And um, so Ben's like, sold. But everybody else was like, this bitch is fucking weird, dude. No. And so he gets 75 references from Mark Cranny. 75. I can't even conceptualize that. I have I have four people that I could probably put down as like solid references that like I wouldn't even have to talk to and they'd give me references. 75 means he's communicated with all these people like in the end, he just has them ready to go. What a baller. Um, uh, then, uh, so, so, and all the, re- the references are like, yep, yep, Mark Crane is a fucking man, dude. He's the man. And then finally, one dude calls and he says, under no circumstances should you hire Mark Crane. And Ben's like, finally. Oh, okay, this guy's like too good to be true. And uh, Ben says, can he do big deals? Yes. Does he know his stuff? Yes. Can he build the org? Yes. But he won't be a culture fit. And Ben's like, what do you mean? And uh, this dude said he brought Mark Cranny in for like some consulting, uh, 50, like consulting 50 new, new hires. And the first thing Mark Cranny does is he walks to the podium and he says, and this is to new hires when he's a consultant. And he says, I don't give a fuck how well trained you are. If you don't bring me 500,000 a quarter, I'm putting a bullet in your fucking head. <laughs> um, he said that. He's a consultant. He's a sales consultant. And that's how he starts his fucking meeting. Uh, ben fell in love. And Ben says, the world looks one way in peacetime but very different when you must fight for your life every day. In peace, one has time to care about things like appropriateness, long-term cultural consequences, and people's feelings. In times of war, killing the enemy and getting the troops home safely is all that counts. I was at war, and I needed a wartime general. Take care of the people first. It's the most difficult of the three. But if you don't do it, the other two won't matter. And there's going to be a whole specific section on uh, peacetime versus wartime CEO because it's super interesting. But um, next principle, management debt. So there's a metaphor of technical debt. And so this is, a, this is like a software term. But at any point when you're developing software, you're, you're between one of two choices. You can do it right and however long it takes. Or you can wiggle your dick around with fucking crayons and then patch it up and fix it later. And so the good thing is you always have your dick in crayons, so you can just really do it in in a day. But however long it takes to do it the right way might be five months. So the concept of technical debt is when you make short-term trade-offs by by writing quick and dirty code, you'll eventually have to pay it back with interest. And sometimes, you know, this trade-off makes sense, but a lot of time you'll run into serious trouble. If if, if you fail to keep the trade-off in front of your mind, it can be a, you know, you can go bankrupt from this debt you owe, meaning you can be at a point where, oops, to f- to actually fix the code is, uh, hey, it's worth more than your company, so fuck it, you're dead. A less understood parallel concept is what he'll call management debt. And so management debt is when you take a short-term expedient solution with an expensive long-term consequence. And this is more in the realm of managing people. So like technical debt, 
The trade-off sometimes makes sense, but often does not. More importantly, if you incur the management debt without accounting for it, then you will eventually go management bankrupt. And so he says it comes in a lot of shapes and sizes, uh, too many to elaborate, but here are the three most popular among startups. Putting two in a box. So let's say you've got a job where, so, okay, so I have a good example. So me, I can do a sales job, but I like, I'm like eight out of 10 at it and it kind of stresses me out a lot. I can do a process job and I'm like seven out of 10 and I fucking hate it. So like I had this perfect Goldilocks zone where um, my old boss was doing the sales part and I was like doing the process part, but like I, we were kind of co-running the sales department. But the thing was, we actually found ourselves like satisfying the macro level Venn diagram of skills necessary to really effectively grow the sales organization. But we were both kind of in the same box. And so it was like, what the fuck do we do? And so it was a period where we woke up one day and he was like kicked off as the emperor and I was now relegated to little bitch. And uh, so it'll it'll come back and, and, and bite you, he said. Um, a couple others like overcompensating a key employee because they get another job offer. So like, you know, I say, hey, I got I got a job offer for 150,000 from uh, from this uh, this company. And they're like, oh, damn it, 165. And then you stay and then you're like paying 40,000 more for me. Uh, well, big problem, because uh, now you just taught your whole company the way to get a raise is to is to negotiate with a competing author. And and I'd also say, um, just say like, say like, just fucking do it. Um, that's, that's management debt for sure. Because you can do that sometimes. And you know, sometimes you can be like, hey, why do you need me to ask? Just fucking do it. Got it. Okay. But if you do that all the time, eventually it's like, well, I don't want to just fucking do it. How about I bite you? What about that? That whole section I'm skipping basically like, Ben likes to use bad words and hurt people's feelings. Ben thought about it and realized that bad words are more effective than people's feelings. Ben uses bad words. There we go. So this last section in this episode is how to avoid politics. Now, read the fucking book. That's the first summary. There's a lot of good shit here. But the two biggest ways to avoid politics are one hire people with the right type with the right type of ambition uh, and this is ambition tied to the organization being successful not just them so that's an interesting concept because you know you're saying he, you want those like dangerously ambitious people who are going to like consider like maybe we should sink russia maybe we should should, should we sink let's sink russia we're going to sink it like you want that type of person, but you want the person who's willing to be that ambitious for the team, not let's sink Russia so I can do a backroom deal and have a hundred geishas a day for life. You don't want that. The second, so, so that's the first. And the second is that there's certain activities that seem to attract political behavior, he would say. Um, and in those situations, you need to build strict process for potentially political issues and never deviate certain activities just attract political behavior so these include like performance evaluations compensation organizational designs so like who reports to who and territory 
promotions, things like that. And so basically, it just has to be everybody has the same rules. So uh, let's simplify for all of our baboons out there. So what he's saying is that you want to set up the system to only encourage the type of behavior you want, meaning like honest, apolitical behavior. Because let's pretend that somehow a rumor has infiltrated the company that the quickest way to get success at the company is to secretly moon the new hires. Okay. Now, you aren't sure this is true, but you want to be successful with this company, and you're pretty sure that Jim over there, he's always joking about mooning the new hires, and uh, he suspiciously just got a promotion, and he, he always is jiggling his belt. You're pretty sure he's a fucking mooner, and he just got promoted. And so you, you resolve, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to moon the new hires. And so, you know, it's a new training class. It's day one, and you're going to hit it so successfully. You're going you're gonna to drive by Moonham, and it's going to be so successful, it's impossible you won't get promoted right away. And so the, the fucking 25 new hires come, and then turning the corner, you have your pants down, you undo your belt, your butt cheeks are out, and then around the corner comes CEO. And he's like, hey, what the fuck are you doing? And you're like, I, I was mooning the new hires. And he's like, I fucking know what you were doing. I meant what on God's green earth fucking possessed you to think that showing the new hires your butt cheeks was a good idea. That's what he's saying. If there isn't clarity and people think that, you know, other people might have gotten ahead by political moves at a large enough scale, they're going to try them too. So everybody gets the same performance evaluation. There's a standard promotion process territory doesn't go to the guy with the loudest mouth or the girl with the biggest boobs just do whatever meritocratically deserves it you know like like the example tom is going to be a fucking bitch if he doesn't get a promotion that's actually not a good enough reason to promote tom okay because uh then we train them that you know what hey i kind of want a promotion ah i'll just act like a bitch with that we are beginning the lessons learned they're great so far. Still crazy stories. Ben's worldview is a, is a mixture between 50 Cent, John D., Rockefeller, and Jesus. But if you want to learn the rest of his lessons on the last and final episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast, you'll have to tune in next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out. At CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.